From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be reflecting on what happened on Super Tuesday and having another go at trying to decode the Donald Trump phenomenon. We're also going to be going back to Ireland to try and make sense of the very complicated election result that happened there. Democracy is a messy business everywhere at the moment. My guest this week is Xenia Wicket, who leads the American program at the Chatham House Policy Institute, one of the world's leading think tanks. And she's going to be talking to me about what the rise of Donald Trump might mean for America's place in the world and why leadership still really matters. If there's another 9-11 event, I think that most people would argue quite rightly that had Al Gore been president, the reaction to 9-11 would have been quite different and we would now be in a quite different place. How different, we don't know, but it would be different. And that's where leadership in a crisis really matters. We're also going to be going back to the nail bar in Brooklyn to find out how Donald Trump is going down there. Comedy. He's a television figure. That's the first thing I think about. I, I look If I'm going to watch him, I'm going to be expecting some sort of punchline. Okay, like in a political arena, what do you think of when you think of Donald Trump? Do you like his politics? I still think comedy, and I'm still waiting for the punchline. Stay with us to hear that and a whole lot more. First, we're going to return to Ireland to explore the significance of last week's election result, with neither of the two main parties, Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle, winning enough seats to form a government, and there's no obvious coalition in sight. I'm joined by our regular panellist, Finbar Livesey, and by Barry Colfer, who's one of our production team and is also an expert on European politics. He spent the last two weeks in Ireland campaigning for Labour, who were the junior coalition partners in the previous government and who got absolutely hammered. Barry, what went wrong? It's a difficult question to answer, but there's something springs to mind that President Juncker, the European Commission, had said, and that European politicians know how to fix the economy, they just don't know how to get re-elected afterwards. From very first-hand experience of speaking to people on the doorsteps, to use the, the jaded cliché, People didn't like what had happened in terms of austerity in five years of cutbacks and the imposition of a deeply unpopular water charge. There was also a, a sense of smugness that the, the Taoiseach Prime Minister was accused of in the leaders' debates. Certainly in 2011, actually, which was the last general election, and that was regarded in itself as kind of a, an, an earthquake and kind of fracturing the historical civil war divide that had existed in Irish politics. What had happened there to a certain extent was the fact that this kind of uh, latent support for Fianna Fáil, which was always there, had just lent its support elsewhere, partly to the Labour Party. And in 2016, we saw a lot of that vote come back. Finbar, one parallel with British politics, UK politics, is that the junior coalition partner, Labour in this case, got hammered and seemed to carry a lot of the blame. Clearly, Fianna Gael also suffered here. But Labour really were the ones who suffered in the Irish context, a bit like the Liberal Democrats suffered in the UK context. Why is it that junior partners in these coalitions seem to lose so badly and get blamed, whereas the senior partners, okay, they don't get away with it, but they don't get quite so much of the blame coming their way? I think this is particularly sharp after the economic crash of 2007. In the past, you've seen smaller parties in Irish politics be in coalition and you don't see such a large swing in the next election. 
after 2007, given austerity, given the reality of the politics in people's lives, people want to take their anger, their real anger out on people. And so there's partly a piece which is Labour put a number of positions in place saying that Fine Gael would do horrendous things if they were into power. And there was a famous advert that they put together that mimicked Tesco's Every Little Matters, Every Little Helps. And all of the things that they said that Fine Gael would do essentially on that poster, imposition of the water charge, etc., came to pass even with them in government. So there's a huge stick that people can beat them with. The other part of it, though, is that Fine Gael were smug and they were slightly misled by the polling. The polling said that they were going to take some hit, but they weren't going to take a huge hit. And that sheltered them and that knocked on down to Labour. And when you put all that together, it's a very combustible mix. In some ways, the most striking feature of this is part of a pattern, and certainly it goes back to the previous election, but Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil used to, between them, when you go back to the 80s, capture maybe 80-85% of the total vote. They've now dropped below 50% their combined vote. And then the other 50% is really divided between a whole range of parties, including some new parties, small parties, independent parties. So we'll come on to that other 50% in a second. But what does it say about Irish politics that the two main parties who have been jostling for power for the entire history of the Irish Republic are now capturing fewer than half of the total electorate? It's something that it's fun to look at, but there is there is a degree of kind of overstating the, the degree of change in Irish politics as well. What we've seen here is, is essentially two things. One is the rise of independence. That is the part that is mostly overstated. The other part is the, is the rise of Sinn Féin, which I'll, I'll remark on in a moment. But in terms of independence, if you actually break down and look at it, of the straightforward independents that have been elected, there's 16 independent independents and six independent aligned independents, which... In the Sounds kind of, a bit Judean people's front, people's absolute, front of Judea. Of the 16 independents, they're all party gene pool independents for the most part. There's a handful of very kind of local issue, parish pump TDs, dollars from different parts of the country. But for the most part, they've managed to kind of profile themselves as party politicians, stepped away from the party system, and then they've managed to kind of present themselves as very popular local TDs who kind of stood up to the party machine. So this kind of idea of a, a rise of, of, of independence is certainly there, but it's still kind of, A, it's something that's always been there, and B, it's, it's slightly overstated. The rise of Sinn Féin is much more interesting, and Sinn Féin have, have risen from one TD in 1997 to five to four to 14 to what will now be 24 TDs. And I think that's the real story because you, you can see all around the country Labour's dinner was eaten by different parties. But the real story for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael here is the emergence of Sinn Féin as the real kind of third block in Irish politics. And Finbar, a lot of the commentary suggests that Sinn Féin could have done even better. And we discussed this last week with David McWilliams. If only Gerry Adams weren't the leader. Is there a thought that this might be the beginning of a really significant rise of Sinn Féin? because the new generation are going to come through at some point, and that far from this being a peak, this might be the beginning of a really significant upward surge. Absolutely. And what you're seeing is Sinn Féin saying that they are the real party of the left and the significant party of opposition. And with Gerry Adams at the helm, most people can't countenance that. And if Adams is off the pitch, Mary Lou MacDonald and others come through and you get a new generation of Sinn Féin folks who were born essentially once the troubles were in decline, once the Good Friday Agreement is signed, and it's a very, very, very different picture. The other piece in here for me as well is when you're talking about the fracturing of Irish politics, 
This is a gradual process that's happened since the 70s. We've had many attempts to start new parties. It's kind of an internal process. And the voting system supports that, given that you get single transferable vote and you can put down your first preference and know that your vote will work further down the ticket when you get back to the bigger parties. But what's really interesting for me is that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, as centre-to-centre-right parties, have remained a large bloc, whereas the left has always been split. So if Sinn Féin can aggregate itself, it will generate a big party of the left, which should produce a different form of politics. But that's very much two elections, three elections from now. We're going to be talking a little later on this podcast about how difficult it is in the American context to quite separate out left from right. And it seems a little old fashioned to be trying to use that as the dividing line. But again, there has been some comment on this election result that it does signal a shift to the left in Irish politics. Maybe it doesn't translate in power terms, but in terms of vote preferences. You're both looking at me completely sceptically here. I'm just channeling what's in the newspapers. <laughs> is, is there, because the, the, the two main centre-right, centre-right-ish parties are now technically in a minority, and I know not everyone on the other side is on the left, but can you detect, I mean, is there, because the, another thing that's noted about European politics is that the crash has not on the whole, signalled a significant shift to the left. Is, is Ireland an exception to that, or is Ireland not an exception, Barry? Well, Talk me through your sceptical look. Okay, my, my sceptical look. Historically, every election you hear of, this vote has brought a great realignment of X, Y, or Z in Irish politics. This is a breakthrough. This is the end of civil war politics. It's happened since, since the 80s. Irish politics is very local, typically very tribal. People will kind of plump for a candidate that they believe in and that they trust. Left and right usually doesn't feature that, obviously. But what we have now is things have changed to a degree that the the parties can't just kind of rhetorically serve this by saying, yeah, there's been a realignment. There, in fact, has been a realignment. No party can go by themselves. Noel Dempsey, a former Fianna Fáil minister, was speaking only yesterday about why don't we learn from the North? Look at what happens in Northern Ireland with power sharing. We have a situation now where it's not just the executive of a party is going to have to govern in order to give the people a stable government. And remember, the election is finished now. Even today, Father Peter McVeary, who's a very famous homeless advocate, for example, was speaking about what we need now is a stable government. And what this unusual mixture of parties may give us is actually, in the long run, a more stable government that will have to become actually more responsible for itself, empowering smaller parties, backbenchers, and kind of a more national government approach to politics beyond left-right. Finbar, the other question that's arisen here is whether the hatchet really will be buried from the civil war politics and are we going to see a grand coalition of the two main centre-right parties, which hasn't happened previously. What do you think is going to happen here? How, how, from this result, do you get to a stable government or actually are we going to have to have another election? We'll get a government, probably a minority Fine Gael government initially. The negotiations are opening up on two fronts. Uh, Micheál Martin has put a proposal forward for reform of the Doyle And that's really interesting as the first thing to do, because it speaks to what Barry was saying about how the doll operates and who gets voting time and how the guillotine works, etc. In terms of the smaller parties, it's a really interesting moment because you need seven seats or more to get speaking rights within the Doyle. And that's what the Independent Alliance and others were trying to do to try and give themselves power. Overall, I think when we talk about civil war politics, tribal politics, etc., for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and for many supporters, I think it isn't the end of civil war politics. It continues. The end of civil war politics is the emergence of new generations of voters who align themselves with other parties or with other ideals. 
telling the future is so difficult and we've seen that a number of times from polls to actually what's happened on the ground in Super Tuesday etc in American politics but for Ireland I would see a short-term minority Fine Gael government and the reason I say short-term is I don't think that Fianna Fáil will be able to control themselves to a full electoral cycle they will want to go back to the people and they will want to try to form a majority government. Barry very briefly what do you think is going to happen as Finba said never try and predict the future but go on, predict the future. What I think, just the only thing I'd add to what, what Finbar says, yes, I think it'll be a minority Fine Gael government. I think there's lots of talk of there being a snap election or another election in May or September or in 12 or 18 months. I haven't been around for a couple of years in Irish elections. Nobody but nobody has the stomach for another election soon. And the reason for that, I think, is whatever party is seen to initiate another election will be punished, and everyone knows that. Thanks to Finbar and to Barry. Barry's also written a blog on our website and you can catch up on his views on the Irish situation as they're unfolding. We're going to come back to this question again. Irish politics has a lot still to be settled. Barry and Finbar will be joining us in a few weeks' time and we're going to talk through what kind of government actually emerges. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. And so on to Super Tuesday. This is the morning after the night before. It's clarified a lot of things. We'll come on to the question of Trump and the Republicans in a moment. But just fairly briefly, I think, let's talk about Hillary Clinton and the Democratic race. Aaron, it looks like it's all over. Bernie Sanders did quite well in the places where he was going to do well. But Hillary Clinton has hoovered up votes insufficient numbers that it's almost impossible to see how she doesn't win the nomination. Is there any downside for her in the results from last night? Uh, At first glance, there really isn't a downside because she's got over three times as many delegates, I believe, as Bernie Sanders at this point when you throw in super delegates, and she's always had the establishment uh, of the Democratic Party support. The one downside, however, might be that if you look at the states that she won and won convincingly, these are states that have voted for the Republican candidate in the past several elections, really the solid South, so to speak, which used to be solid for the Democrats, but after the Southern realignment is now solid for the Republicans. This speaks to the fact that so far there's not a lot of evidence that she's mobilizing voters in states that tend to be more bluish, uh, to use the American term, right, that tend to vote Democratic. Uh, And in general, there's been some worry about the level of Democratic turnout. So if Hillary is winning, but she's not necessarily mobilizing the people that she needs to mobilize to win, that could be a concern. I would say, though, on the other hand, people might be underestimating the importance of the African-American vote. And she has decisively won in states where a large number of the people voting in Democratic primaries are African-American. And so I think that does bode well. So a mixed bag, but uh, Hillary is looking pretty good going ahead. The weaknesses, of course, would depend on there being a Republican candidate capable of exploiting them, which brings us to Donald Trump. Helen, he did well last night. He won six states, I believe. In some of them, he won handsomely. Massachusetts, he got nearly half of the Republican vote. And it is true that turnout in the Republican primaries has been very high. There is, for want of a better word, a lot of enthusiasm for something going on out there. But in other respects, he didn't do quite as well as the polls suggested, and he did lose a number of states, and he was handsomely defeated by Ted Cruz in Texas. He also lost in Oklahoma. 
Marco Rubio has finally won a state. He won Minnesota. It looks good for Trump. Again, the same question. Is there a significant downside here? I think that the downside for Trump is not only that he lost in Oklahoma, which wasn't really predicted, but that in some of the states in which he won, in which he had 40% in the opinion polls, he was much nearer to 30%. I think the best example of that is Virginia, where he's only going to have won by a couple of points, where there were polls last week that were showing him much further ahead than that. Well, that has to be said, that was the state where Rubio devoted most resources. He was desperate to win Virginia, and he didn't. That's true. I think the problem from the point of view of those who want to stop Trump is is that in many ways that Cruz had a better night than Rubio did and particularly as you said that Rubio spent a lot of money in Virginia and also that the super PAC money that went into attacking Trump in the last few days is lined up behind Rubio and it hasn't made enough difference for Rubio to emerge as the leading candidate to stop Trump. Some of the commentary already in the papers this morning Chris is saying that the distinctive characteristic of Donald Trump as a national politician, is he's the luckiest politician anyone can remember because he is facing a divided opposition. And every time it looks like someone might have the incentive to pull out, they get lucky in a small way and it keeps them in the race. Even John Kasich, he did well enough last night that he's probably going to stick it out at least until Ohio, which means that in some respects, and it's strange how often this seems to be the case in American politics, it's going to come down to Florida There is a huge premium now for Marco Rubio if he's going to stay in this race. He has to win his home state, and at the moment he's behind. Is that now the key test, do you think? Is this about... Because though Ted Cruz had a good light, there's still lots of reasons to think that he's not the candidate that the Republicans want. Is this now about Rubio in Florida, and if Rubio loses Florida, is that it? Florida is obviously a very important test. Uh, It's the next big one coming up, and it's... Rubio's home state. So if he can't carry Florida, what are you doing in this kind of contest? Mathematically, it's all very complicated, but people who will be anxious to stop Trump will be hoping for a split convention. They'll be hoping for a brokered convention. And if Cruz has won big in Texas and Rubio has won big in Florida, then you can begin to construct stories about how the split in Trump's opposition might help nevertheless to deny him the delegates he needs for the nomination. But right now, this looks like a long shot. People were watching for the wheels to fall off the Trump bandwagon for a long time now, and they haven't really. And a strong showing in Florida, even if he doesn't win, will take him ever closer to the the magic number of delegates that he needs to secure the nomination. Napoleon always used to say that the chief quality he valued in his generals was that they were lucky. Luck's a a strange thing that works in strange ways. I think the one thing we can be sure of is that Donald Trump is not going to be pulling out of this race anytime soon, and so we will be talking about him plenty more. We asked Galen Druk to go back to the nail bar in Brooklyn that we've been to a couple of times already to get some really interesting commentary on this election, this fascinating election. And we asked Galen to ask the people in the nail bar for their take on Trump's candidacy. I think of someone with a very limited vocabulary. Like he actually said, believe me, we're going to keep Guantanamo Bay open and we're going to load him up with a lot of bad dudes. It's like, whose president are you? Like, are you running for president of like kindergarten? It makes me feel like this country is a freaking joke. Like... What are we doing? Like, why is he... I don't even know how it got to this point. I'm still waiting for them to be like, okay, this is the new season of Punk. I'm just over him. I, I just want him to disappear. You know, I, I don't like how he treats and talk about women. 
what woman is gonna vote for him? You know, you talk about how we have our monthly and all that other stuff. No, that's, yes, that's a part of life, it is. But, and your mother has that too, you know? That's how she was able to have you. Like, come on, I, I don't like the way he talks, the way he downgrades women. It's, it's disrespectful. And how dare you? Comedy. He's a television figure. That's the first thing I think about. I, I look if I'm gonna watch him, I'm going to be expecting some sort of punchline. Um, but okay, like in a political arena, what do you think of when you think of Donald Trump? Do you like his politics? I still think comedy, and I'm still waiting for the punchline. Why do you think people like Donald Trump? Um, I think that Donald Trump represents the extreme. And I think there are a lot of extremists in today's society. And people like that he speaks his mind and that he tells the, well, his truth. I think that people like that he keeps it simple. He's just saying plainly, I think that Mexicans are all rapists and drug dealers. And that's what people who don't want to think hard or delve deeper into anybody's politics want to hear. And they're like, yeah, me too. I like Donald Trump. So it's just easy to agree with because he's saying everything plainly. I saw a poll uh, just earlier today and it was like 20% of Donald Trump voters think that slaves should have never been freed. I, I think that because of the racial climate in the country and everything's charged that there's, you know, we don't live in the gray as much as we want to. I think people are gonna be f pushed further and further to the extremes, especially in times like this, you're gonna see what people are really made of. Are you surprised? These people have been living in America for the longest time. It's now that they, find a, they found a spokesperson in Donald Trump. He says what a lot of people have probably been thinking but too afraid to say because they don't want to be called you know, racist or they don't want to be judged for their opinions. And he's just blatant and loud. And, and he's rich, so he can do it without any consequences. We knew people felt this way. I mean, this is not surprising. None of this is surprising. I'm never surprised when racist people do racist things or ignorant people say ignorant things. It's never, it's never, there's no new news for me. I mean, do you think that there is a, a change in terms of like how comfortable people are voicing these opinions now that Donald Trump has given them a voice in a very public way? Oh, absolutely. Before, people wouldn't say crazy things because they would fear real life uh, repercussions. But the first time somebody says something reckless and gets away with it, People look around and then they're like, oh shit, the worst that could happen is someone going, hey, you hurt my feelings, that was offensive, apologize. And then you can say no, and then that's it. And then you keep doing that. It started off with, well, somebody's doing the raping. Then it went to, we should ban all Muslims. I'm really concerned about how globally we're going to look to everyone else because clearly they know that he's a joke. And, and like, we're, I feel like, with, like globally, we're going to lose a lot of ground because he doesn't know anything about foreign policy, I'm sure. Do you think that Donald Trump's support is in any way a reaction to President Obama? Yeah. It could be also a pres uh, kind of like the other extreme. It's like people elected a black president. Well, now we want somebody to represent us, to speak for us. It really is all about fear. They're afraid that they are losing ground. I'm African-American, so I can only speak from the African-American experience. It's fear that we're taking over, for lack of a better word. Oh, they got a president. Oh, they want to say that all police are bad. Oh, they wanna, they're causing all this ruckus. They're making too much noise, and we're losing our voice in this. We want to carry our Confederate flag. We're proud of where we're from, too. Like, we're proud to be white, but we're proud to be. It's all about fear. They feel like they're losing their voice when 
The whole country belongs to you guys. What happens like February of 2017 if Donald Trump actually is elected president? You keep living your life. That's the beauty of the American political system is that there's checks and balances and then you have a Congress and then you have a judicial board and then you have everybody that's there to keep him in place. So what he can say can only go so far. You go out, you vote, and you hope for the best. You keep in contact with you know, your local Congress people and, and councils and you hope that they represent your values and that four years go by quickly. Thank you to Galen Druk, and we will be revisiting the nail bar for more commentary as this election unfolds. Erin, if I could come to you, I think we do have to address the question of race here. It is clearly important for understanding Trump's appeal. People differ significantly on this. And a little later in this podcast, we're going to come back and talk about another possible frame of reference for this, which is economics and class. But on the race question, there is a suggestion, we heard a little bit of a discussion of it there, that there is real resentment among significant parts of the white electorate about having had an African-American president for the last eight years. It's beneath the surface, but maybe this is where it's coming out. And one of the most striking facts for me of the last presidential election in 2012 was that though Mitt Romney was pretty clearly defeated in the overall vote, among white voters who still make up a large majority of the total electorate, more than 70%, Romney won a Reagan-esque landslide, roughly 58, 59%, 20 points ahead of Obama. Do you feel there is a sense among significant parts of the white electorate that an African-American president was foisted on them? I think I think yes, actually. I was about to say that might be too harsh a word, but then when you think about challenges to Obama's nationality, uh, basically, right, the so-called birtherism claims that uh, he was not born in the United States, that he was born in Kenya. And Donald uh, Trump was a leading birther for a while. Precisely. This is, you know, a tactic that was aimed at delegitimizing Obama in the minds of people. So uh, I don't want to characterize that as the majority of white voters in the United States, but there certainly was a, a groundswell of it. And I think you have a confluence of three distinct factors that have really emerged in the last eight years or so in the minds of a lot of voters in the United States. One is the election of Barack Obama, of course. Two is greater awareness of shifting demographics in the United States and a large debate over uh, immigration, illegal immigration, even though ironically uh, illegal immigration from Mexico is declining as one would expect it to after a large recession. And three, you also have kind of increasing fear, and I draw here some parallels to the 1960s of a disruption of law and order, which you see in really sometimes vitriolic criticisms of the Black Lives Matter movement and reactions to protests that did turn violent in places like Ferguson, Missouri. So this is likely to activate, so to speak, latent authoritarian traits, fear of the other, fear of people who are not like you. Helen, does this also pose a problem for Hillary Clinton in that, as we've seen last night and throughout this part of the campaign, Bernie Sanders' appeal is primarily to white voters, and Hillary Clinton has a very strong appeal among African-American voters it's very hard to see anyone countering that. But does that mean she faces some of the same kinds of challenges that Obama faced? I think that it does in a way, but there's a kind of paradox here, because in 2008, Hillary Clinton was in something like the same position in which Trump is in now. 
and that is is that she was running against an African American candidate who was exceptionally successful at mobilising the African American vote. She was much better at mobilising the white working class vote within the Democratic Party, some of which is now shifted over to voting for Trump in the Republican primaries. Part of the critique that was made by Obama supporters against both Hillary Clinton and uh, Bill Clinton was that they were playing the race card against Obama. So she's been here on the other side of this and now she's trying to mobilise the dynamic the other way round. I don't think there's any danger of her losing the African-American vote. And I think that she has, in some ways, a better chance with the white working class vote than Obama did in 2008, 2012. The problem for her more is that she's open to attack from Trump as being very much part of the party establishment, which is extremely unpopular on both sides of the partisan divide this time round. I want to say she's a Clinton, so she's experienced at doing things both ways. Chris, one final question on this. Uh, This week, Donald Trump equivocated, to put it mildly, when asked to disavow the former Ku Klux Klan grand wizard, David Duke, and when asked about white supremacism, denied knowledge of it before a few hours later, repudiating it. How explicit was that an attempt by Trump to have it both ways and to pander to some fairly overt racism at, at the same time as trying to present himself as a respectable mainstream candidate. Yes, is it is it a dog whistle or is it more of a foghorn? Um, there's a fascinating little historical detail here that's been unearthed that uh, in a KKK rally in New York in 1927 that Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, was arrested. We don't know the full story. We don't quite know why he was picked up at that rally. I don't think he was charged with anything. Uh, But as I say, this fascinating little historical snippet. Trump, I think, is being the Trump that we're used to. He's saying outrageous things. Nobody really thinks he's being truthful or sincere or that he doesn't know who the KKK is. So sure, he's giving a signal and it's a very, very unpleasant signal. One wonders quite what he gets out of it. Most racist voters have probably already declared for Trump and black voters aren't going to vote for him anyway. So what does he have to get out of it? Well, he keeps himself on the front pages and he's hoovering up the publicity and it looks as if Trump's view is that there's no such thing as bad publicity for his campaign. And it may be that for the kind of insurgency he's running against the Republican establishment, against the broader American political establishment, that may be right. But obviously it's a it's a, a gross and, a, and an offensive and a, in many ways a stupid and unpleasant thing to say. Thanks to Aaron, to Helen and Chris. If you'd like to hear more about what a brokered convention actually is, or get an explanation of how we got to Super Tuesday, Aaron has recorded some snippets and you can hear them on our website. Just go to Election Politics Podcast. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Podcast. On Super Tuesday itself, I spoke to Xenia Wickett, who leads the study of U.S. foreign policy 
and America's role in the world at the Chatham House think tank. I began by asking her what she thinks the durability of Trump's appeal in this election says about how Americans are thinking of their place in the world. I think that when people look to Trump and the people that Trump is resonating with, that he's not doing so because of how Trump sees America's place in the world, how Trump sees America's foreign policy. It's resonating because of how Trump sees America and how Trump is able to harness, if you will, the disenfranchised, the people who've been left behind despite America's uh, growth out of recession. And they're looking to how they're treated in America, the opportunities they have within America. And so I do think that those who support Trump haven't focused on how Trump resonates globally, but are focusing on how Trump resonates for them as individuals. Because the, the challenge is to make sense from the outside how this essentially, let's turn our back on the world, old-fashioned, almost isolationist stance, goes with someone whose slogan is that he's going to make America great again. I mean, How do those two pieces fit together in the American psyche, that you turn your back on the world and that's the way to make America great again? He absolutely has focused on making America great again, but I, th I think there's a addendum to that, which is make America great, great again for you as an individual. So he's really reaching out to, as I say, the disenfranchised and, and allowing them to be part of this great America again. He certainly hasn't announced any isolationist stance. Um, he does talk about China, he talks about ISIS, he talks about terrorism, uh, he talks about a very strong American military, a strong American trade policy, one that is, in his terminology, great, but one that is more assertive, but not necessarily one that acts more internationally. But we have to remember, and I think it is very true in this election, as it has been in previous elections, uh, this is not about American foreign policy. American foreign policy doesn't really resonate in an election. So people are interpreting his words, his rhetoric, in a very domestic way, rather than in an international way. And that's where you've got this disjunct between what people are hearing internationally, how it's resonating in the international community, and how it's resonating domestically, who are interpreting his words in a, with a very domestic flavour, if you will. And the question of how it resonates internationally is really interesting. The, the New York Times earlier this week ran a piece about how Europeans are reacting now with increasing horror to the prospect of Donald Trump winning the nomination. And yet at the same time, their point of reference for the kind of politician that Donald Trump is, is often European. So either they're comparing him to Mussolini. In the contemporary context, they're comparing him to people like Marine Le Pen. And so there is this question, on the one hand, for Europeans, there's something quintessentially American going on here. And yet when people try and make sense of it, they try and compare what Trump is doing to the kind of populism that we're seeing in Europe. So do, do you see him as quintessentially American or do you see resonance with what's happening in Europe? I definitely see resonance with what's happening in Europe. I mean, he's tapping into those people who don't feel for them that America has come out of the recession. They haven't seen the benefits of America's return to growth and the, relatively speaking, low unemployment rates, because in many cases they are still unemployed or they're underemployed. That's a phenomena that is also taking place here in Europe. And if you look at what 
some of the more populist parties who've succeeded in Europe, whether it's UKIP, whether it's Marine Le Pen in France or others, it is tapping into the disenfranchised, it's tapping into those left behind. So I think there really is a common phenomena. It doesn't surprise me that European commentators are trying to find the European analogy, because of course that, that's what makes sense to a European reader. And I, I agree with you, I think Europeans in particular are made very nervous by this. We did a study uh, a year or so ago that looked at what European and Asian elites respected in the United States, what they looked for in the United States. If you're in Asia, you look for America's military strength. If you're in Europe, you look for America's moral values. America is a leader in moral values, and a lot of uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric doesn't, uh, doesn't really conform to that in any way. So how much damage do you think, obviously we have no idea what's going to happen even in the next few weeks, never mind between now and um, the autumn, but how much damage do you think this election has potentially to do to Americans' international standing, the way that the world sees the United States? I mean, is, you say it's not a foreign policy election. It's clearly not. It's primarily about domestic issues. But certainly at the level of the political establishment, is there growing anxiety about the long-term damage that might be done to America's standing in the world by this election, regardless of the result? I think you have to look at this in, in many facets. I mean, the, the first is to say, let's see who the president is and let's see what their policies are. And if the next president, be they Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or even uh, Rubio, if he, if he manages to pull ahead, wh what are their policies? And in the end, particularly in places like Europe, people will look to what is done, not to what is said. Uh, and much of this election campaign will be forgotten. There are some places where that is not the case. If you look in parts of the Middle East, I suspect that many people for the coming decade will remember Donald Trump's rhetoric about uh, not accepting any more Muslims into the United States for the time being. But I think there is a distinction here, and we need to make that distinction between what policy is and what perceptions are. In policy terms, I think that whether it is Donald Trump or it is Hillary Clinton or it is Marco Rubio, uh, we are going to have a policy that in many respects isn't so different from what we have today. And we can talk a little bit about where the nuances are. In perceptions, I think this has rocked people backwards that uh, many Americans would support somebody who is coming out with the rhetoric that Donald Trump is. But if in 10 months or in nine months, say Hillary Clinton is elected, then I think there will be a very quick riposte, which is, yes, of course, uh, we did, but then we rejected him. Do you think if it is Trump versus Clinton that it might reconfigure the American foreign policy establishment, so leaving aside the, the people who are voting in this election, because the most striking thing in many ways is that there will be a Republican candidate who is a critic of the Iraq war, and the Democratic candidate will, in some senses, be tied to her decision to vote for that war. And there is speculation that, among other things, what this means is that the neoconservatives, who came out of the Democratic Party, but of course became identified with the Republican Party, may have to move back again. That actually the Hillary Clinton presidency, faced with a Trump opposition, will really overturn what has been the order for the last 10 to 15 years of American politics in relation to foreign policy. I think it is going to be extraordinarily interesting to see how this develops and post the election, where the political parties end up. 
I think particularly if Hillary Clinton wins, uh, I think there's going to be a real divide and perhaps even a split within the Republican Party, as there was, in fact, four years ago, where the centrist Republicans say we went too far. Uh, and now the, the, the contrary to that, of course, is, is that politics in America has become so partisan that the idea that you would have somebody cross the aisle from the Republican to the Democratic Party is almost anathema. So that will, in, in social issues, be extraordinarily hard. But on foreign policy issues, I agree, you are going to have a real struggle with some in the, in the Republican side who struggle with having a fiscal conservatism, social conservatism, but a foreign policy that sits much more cleanly, perhaps, in a Clinton White House. And how hawkish do you think uh, Hillary Clinton presidency would be? Um, obviously, it's hard to know what are the big issues that she's going to have to deal with, though we can imagine some of them. They will include dealing with Russia and, of course, dealing with the threat of ISIS and thinking about the Middle East. But do you have a sense, once she's no longer campaigning, of what her true colours really are on these questions? We know her true colours up to a point because she was Secretary of State for four years and there was enough media about those issues that she felt strongly with and, that she, and really divided her from Obama. Uh, so, I mean, I think on Syria, she was much more forward-leaning. Arguably on Libya, she held a, a somewhat dif- different position as well. Uh, on ISIS, she has um, put forward somewhat of a different position. So I think we do know where she would come down on a lot of foreign policy issues, and they are generally more hawkish than President Obama has been. That being said, you have to remember that the principal driver of American foreign policy today isn't so much the individual, isn't so much the leader, but is the context. America's foreign policy has been conducted in an environment in which the challenges that we face are international, are global, that America cannot act alone. And that is that is requiring America to act in a more multilateral way and with partners, and that limits America sometimes. The other principal driver of American foreign policy today is resources and the fact that um, more resources do need to be spent at home on social issues, on infrastructure issues, and thus there is less resource to spend in the foreign policy domain, in in, in the security domain. So I think that those are the principal drivers of America's future role in the world, which is why you have seen during Obama's administration, and you will likely see during the coming administration, an America that is a little less interventionist, a little less assertive on the international scene. And I think that will continue in the next administration, be it a Trump, a Rubio, or a Clinton administration. The the individual matters somewhat less. So... As a final question then, and I think I know the answer from what you've just said, but it would be good to have this spelled out because I think it's a really important point. So we've been running this series of interviews looking at the US election because it is the showcase of global democracy in many ways. And elections are, they're a great show. The stories are exciting. They're funny. But in some ways, maybe we fixate too much on the question of who's the next American president. Because from what you said, actually... What really is going to shape the world over the next 10, 15, 20 years has much less to do with the outcome of elections and much more to do with long-term trends and patterns that we barely notice when we look at what happened in the debate between Trump and Rubio or whatever it is. Are we too preoccupied globally with American presidential politics and not thinking enough about what's really driving change? I think our focus on the election is understandable and actually quite necessary because individuals do matter Leadership does matter. 
but I think we imbue the American president with too much control, particularly sitting here in Europe. We are having a debate in the United States today over the balance of the Supreme Court. And you can make a pretty strong argument that suggests that over the longer term, over the coming, say, two or three decades, uh, during which the new uh, Supreme Court justice will sit on the Supreme Court most likely, they will have more influence over the long term than will the next president who could perhaps sit there for only four years. The nature of the Congress uh, and whether the Senate, for example, stays in the Republican hands or moves to Democratic hands, that is hugely influential. And yet we focus just on one individual. The caveat to that is, you know, if there's another 9-11 event, I think that most people would argue quite rightly that had Al Gore been president, the reaction to 9-11 would have been quite different and we would now be in a quite different place. And that's where leadership in a crisis really matters. That's why we focus. Thank you to Xenia Wicket. And now back to our panel. Aaron, what do you think about the question that I asked there? Is it possible that the neocons are about to switch side? Essentially, the people who were the architects of the Iraq war, they had their intellectual roots in the Democratic Party. They switched to the Republicans because that was the way to get what they wanted. But in a Trump versus Clinton race, the hawkish Clinton looks like a natural home for them. Are they going to switch sides here? I am actually skeptical that they would switch sides. I would say the more likely outcome would be that they would abstain. Uh, The most vocal expression of neocon uh, discussed with Trump I've seen recently was by Elliot Cohen, who's a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University and served in the George W. Bush administrations and is considered by most to be a neocon. Um, The problem is that while the neoconservatives had their birth, so to speak, on the left uh, in the Democratic Party, being hawkish on foreign policy while being more socially liberal and economically liberal on domestic issues. And you think of uh, people like Senator Henry Scoop Jackson and Daniel Patrick Moynihan and people like this. Um, the neoconservatives have firmly moved into the Republican Party. All right, so Irving Kristol's son, Bill Kristol, uh, didn't have the experience of being a Trotskyite uh, and so never considered himself really a person of the left, to my knowledge. Uh, And that's hard, right, to shake that kind of uh, entrenchment in a political party. So my guess, and this is speculation, of course, it would be that neoconservatives would simply be demobilized by Trump, though there is some history of them supporting Clinton's. Neoconservatives did get behind Bill Clinton's wars in in the Balkans in the 1990s. But uh, I think demobilization, again, is probably the best or most likely outcome. But it does suggest that we're seeing a shake-up of left-right divisions in American politics, which have always been quite complicated and don't just map onto European lines. Helen, I was very struck by a line from the conservative commentator George Will, who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but roughly, he never thought he'd live to see the day when the Republicans were about to nominate a candidate who was going to run well to the left of Hillary Clinton. That is, he sees Trump as being well to the left of Hillary Clinton. Is that plausible? Is Donald Trump a a candidate in any sense of the left? I think that he is going back to the point that Aaron's made in terms of foreign policy, because the way in which foreign policy has been set up essentially puts the neoconservatives to the right and everybody opposing them to the left. And Donald Trump is the one candidate in the Republican race who is not only not 
neoconservative, but attacks neoconservative positions, not least American foreign policy over the last two administrations in the Middle East and more. So on some issues, say US-Saudi Arabia, he sounds more like Michael Moore than he does sound like anybody else in the Republican Party. So in that sense, it makes sense. He's also not really of the right, he's certainly not a conservative in terms of his attitude towards entitlement reform. And one of the reasons why I think he does best in the Northeast is is because he is a Republican candidate who's got really not the slightest interest in the social conservative agenda that's dominated the Republican Party to the right over the last three decades. So in that sense, if you take out a number of the issues about um, Islam uh, and illegal immigration and the wall, he's the most centrist candidate Republicans have come up with in a long time. And I think what Will was thinking of primarily was Trump's claim that he's going to look after everybody. I mean, that's sort of, it's a version of what Aaron called kind of daddy president. And it doesn't go along with, as you put it, entitlement reform. It sounds like big state politics. It does. And in in, in that sense, he's very unpopular amongst those who are self-proclaimed conservatives, because that they see an attack on big government, government for its own sake, as something that's fundamental to the conservative creed. I still think the Republican Party establishment and the big-name conservatives are most upset with him about foreign policy because that's the thing that they really care about the most. Chris, I don't want to go too left-field with this, but I did hear a fascinating talk earlier this week by a historian called Gareth Stedman-Jones who's about to publish a major new biography of Karl Marx, which is going to be a big event this summer. Um, He was talking about... Karl Marx's writings for the American press in the 1850s, so we're going back a bit. But what made me connect it to this presidential race was the line that we often hear, which is from despairing Republicans, they cannot believe that the party of Abraham Lincoln is about to nominate Donald Trump as its candidate for president. Well, the party of Abraham Lincoln in the 1850s was also the party of Karl Marx, because he was writing for the Republican press, and he was at least accommodating to various Republican positions. And some of these positions were strikingly similar to what we hear today. The Republican Party in the 1850s was rife with conspiracy theories. It was protectionist. It was anti-free trade. It stood up for the working man. There were certainly some profound issues of race underpinning it. I would like someone in this election to throw at Donald Trump the line, I can't believe that the party of Karl Marx is about to nominate, or maybe I can believe that the party of Karl Marx is about to nominate Donald Trump as its presidential candidate. Can you believe it? It's an intriguing uh, historical parallel, but I'd want to push back on it quite hard. After Lincoln was re-elected in 1864, the International Working Men's Association, of which Marx was the secretary, uh, sent him a fan letter But the basis that the admiration that Marx expresses in that letter for Lincoln is focused on the slavery question. It's Lincoln's commitment to the abolition of slavery, Lincoln prosecuting the war against the slaveholding South. That's what Marx acknowledges. That's why Lincoln looms so large in his imagination in the 1860s. And Marx and the International Working Men's Association make the point that uh, no labour can be free if black labour is unfree. So while the the conspiracism, the concern for the ordinary working man, it, it is all there. Um, but central to Marx's appreciation of Lincoln and the Republicans was that they were right on the central question of race and slavery in, in 1860s America. And to that extent... It's difficult to see Trump as uh, carrying the banner of Marx's republicanism from the 1850s and 60s forwards. 
And that does make absolutely clear one of the central facts of American political history, that the Civil War changes pretty much everything. The Republican Party of the 1850s was not Lincoln's party because Lincoln did not look like he was going to be the person that they would hitch their banner to. Um, and that was the, it was the 1850s party, which was this one that was really rife with some of this fairly nasty Trumpian kind of stuff. And as we heard from the nail bar, the slavery question is cutting across this election again with this extraordinary a poll that showed that 20% of Americans want to turn back the clock pre-emancipation, or at least don't think it was necessarily a good idea. I mean, the other really striking thing here is just how great the hold is still of the politics of that period on 21st century American politics. It is a, a touch point for a lot of these arguments still. Uh, that's right. And they're not old arguments lost in the mists of the 19th century because from the period of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, they've been placed right at the heart of the politics of building a presidential majority for the Republican Party. Since the late 1960s, the Republican Party has has very squarely tried to benefit from white resentment directed against the uh, politics of black emancipation in the Old South. So it's a story from the 1850s and the 1860s, but it's one that exploded into importance again in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, and it's been central to the electoral geography of presidential politics ever since. And with Obama's election, people were asking whether the fact that Obama carried North Carolina and uh, Florida was increasingly Democratic, people were wondering whether that old Republican presidential coalition was um, fraying enough around the edges that we'd see a new geographical realignment of American politics. Well, we're still wondering what it might look like. If someone like Rubio were the candidate, you'd see a Republican perhaps who was credibly able to fold a lot of Latino voters into a Republican coalition uh, that would make it look perhaps different from what it looks at the moment. But it looks to me as if Trump is doubling down on something like the old Southern strategy, get the white racists on your side at the heart of your electoral block, sweep the South, and then try to pick up votes elsewhere to give you the majority in the Electoral College. The one connection that we do have here is protectionism. The Republican Party in the 1850s was against free trade, and Donald Trump, that's part of his agenda. How important, Aaron, a part of his agenda is it, do you think, in trying to broaden his appeal to stand up for the ordinary American working man and woman by putting barriers up in the way of free trade? I think it is important. Uh, to go back briefly, one thing I'd like to say to defend my uh, fellow American citizens, it's not 20% of American citizens who disapprove of the emancipation of the slaves. It's 20% of Trump supporters in primary elections, which is a considerably smaller percentage of the American electorate. That being said, yes, it is somewhat interesting to note that for the historically minded, people do recognize that the Republican Party was traditionally not the sort of uh, uh, neoliberal free market party of uh, Reagan and Milton Friedman that it is today. Uh, the problem with that is, as we're starting to see, is that Republican voters do not necessarily and perhaps never really have necessarily shared that stance nearly to the same extent as have the Republican Party elites. And now that issues like race, issues like threats from non-white actors overseas have become more salient, I think that has opened also political space 
if you will, to mobilize these voters who have never really gotten on board with the free trade agenda, precisely because it does in many ways threaten their own livelihoods to make that more salient as well, because it is again about protecting from the unknown. So you can keep going back to this theme of uncertainty, feelings of insecurity, whether that is physical or economic, um, and see how these issues, even though they seemingly are, are disparate on their face, really do link up. Thank you to Helen, Aaron, and Chris, to Finbar and Barry for their coverage of the Irish election, to Galen Druk for his reporting from Brooklyn, and to our production team of Catherine Carr and Lizzie Presser. Next week, we'll be turning our attention closer to home, when I'll be joined by Jeremy Cliff, who writes the hugely influential Badgett column for The Economist, and we'll be discussing Brexit, the future of the United Kingdom, and the possible fate of David Cameron. Do please join us then, when we'll also be keeping our eye on developments from over the pond. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election. Election.